0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, June 1st. We all love a comeback story, and Albertans were witness to a remarkable political comeback story earlier this week on Election Day. We discuss the return of Danielle Smith with Lisa Young, political scientist from the University of Calgary.
1: Addressing the shortcomings of Alberta's health care system was a top priority during the election, so how can we ensure the UCP follow through on campaign health care promises? Well, we speak with Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare.
0: And finally, it's our bi-weekly conversation with mental health advocate, Karen Gallagher-Burt. This time out, Karen explains the negative effect social media can have on our mental health. Premier Danielle Smith's election this week marks a remarkable political comeback. Joining us to discuss the state of Alberta politics following the latest provincial election is Lisa Young, professor of political science at University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Lisa. Good morning. All right, let's talk about this. I, I just called it a comeback which is interesting because we are so enthralled in this election. I never thought of it from this angle. Uh, What are your views on Danielle Smith's political career, now finding herself uh, elected by Albertans and not just the party as uh, premier?
2: Yeah. I think, you know, to put this in perspective, we all need to sort of mentally go back a year or a little over a year. And if someone had told us that Danielle Smith would be the premier of Alberta, we we might have been a little bit skeptical. So, you know, if, if we think back to that time, she had been out of politics for several years. Um, She had taken some fairly controversial stances about COVID and and some other issues. Um, And of course, she was still carrying the uh, anger of uh, some people about her decision to cross the floor when she was opposition leader. So it seemed unlikely that she would win the party leadership, but she did. And then it seemed unlikely that she was going to win this election. If we look at the polls when she took over the party and she won the election so I think it's fair to call this a comeback
1: yeah 2014 and then 2022 for sure I I agree with you there really is a comeback and I I think probably uh, there are a lot of folks who didn't think she could ever pull it off so you know kudos to her for sort of rebranding herself as she moved forward through all of it but can she change and reset her relationship with the federal government because it's been pretty controversial a lot of the things she said she wants to defend Alberta to the feds in Ottawa is she going to be able to play Play nice with them, or do you think there's going to be a lot of battling throughout the next four years?
2: I suspect that we're going to see a lot of conflict uh, between Alberta probably together with Saskatchewan and the federal government, at least as long as the uh, federal liberals uh, form that government. Um, I, I think that there's, there are issues that are coming. Um, certainly the Trudeau government has uh, uh, held off on, on uh, announcing any decisions about how to address greenhouse gas emissions until the provincial election was over. Um, and, and so there is certainly conflict uh, brewing over that. Um, and I I think if we look at at the factors that are shaping uh, what Danielle Smith does, she has to manage a caucus where there are some sort of establishment Kenny Conservatives, but also some uh, more populist take-back Alberta Conservatives. They don't agree about a lot of issues, but I think they could probably come together and support her in taking an adversarial stance toward the Trudeau government.
0: Premier Smith has had some fairly extreme political stands compared to where uh, conservative views and values may have lied in the past, uh, but still moved on through. Uh, She won the majority. So how did Smith uh, Smith adapt her approach to appeal to more centrist electorate or or did that even matter uh, during this election?
2: I think it probably mattered quite a lot. Um, I think one of the keys was that in her budget before the election, she reversed some of the decisions of the Kenny government, particularly around spending on health care and education. She took a different tone about this. And so she really went back to what we can think of as kind of a classic formula of conservative governments in, in Alberta of being high spending and low tax and that is a winner with a significant portion of the electorate of course it's only possible as long as you are have have significant resource revenues coming in
1: professor what do you think overall about uh, danielle smith's win how it will affect canadian politics as a whole are there lessons for other canadian conservatives out there well, you know, it's an interesting
2: question because I think that Pierre Polyev, uh, as uh, the federal conservative leader, faces a challenge that's similar in some ways to the challenge that faced Smith. Um, He was elected with support from populists. He embraced the uh, freedom convoy at the time it happened. Um, And and so then the question is, how do you move from that to appealing to more centrist voters and and convincing them that you're not a radical? Um, I think the question is whether Polyev can, can follow the same sort of path that Smith did to this Because he doesn't have the advantage of the, you know, remarkable uh, money that's available uh, to the premier of Alberta when uh, oil prices are high.
0: Interesting times. Uh, The influence of uh, the Danielle Smith win and the UCP, uh, we know what what, uh, the platforms are. We know what we have moving ahead. But what about the influence uh, across the nation? Uh, What sort of ripple effect will this have for uh, conservatives? Do you think we'll see an effect?
2: I think it's it's going to be very interesting Um, if we assume that Alberta and Saskatchewan are going to start pushing back pretty hard against federal uh, action on greenhouse gas emissions and and climate change um, and and also the carbon tax. I, I think we can imagine a federal election that might be fought in part on the question of climate change and the future of the energy industry in Canada.
1: Want to ask your, your thoughts, Professor, before we let you go about the opposition parties. What happens now? The NDP, does Rachel Notley stay on as she says she will? Does she stay on as leader? What about the Alberta party? There have been some big names that sort of said that they could not vote for the UCP as it was today and sort of moved over towards a, a little bit more centrist Alberta party, but they didn't make a, much of a splash in the provincial election. What, what can we make of the opposition parties moving forward?
2: Yeah, I I think that the Alberta Party is going to really struggle to find a way back into the conversation. Being shut out of the legislature for a second election in a row makes it that much harder. Um, And we saw their support collapse go largely to the NDP. Uh, The NDP is in a much stronger position. Um, We know that they were very successful with fundraising. They were able to mobilize lots of support both in Edmonton and in parts of Calgary. They now have lists of donors and supporters, you know, they've got the machinery in place to continue on and contest uh, the next election. Um, I think leadership is going to be a key variable here. My own hunch is that Rachel Notley will step down at some point uh, in the next four years, probably after she's made sure that there are potential successors in place and that her departure won't uh, end the party's good fortunes. Um, I, I think she's very invested in that for good reason. She's she's built the party up in remarkable ways in her time as leader.
0: I want to ask you this, uh, Professor Young. You, there was a lot, you've talked to your friends, family, neighbors coworkers about the election and the choices. And there was quite a few people who came out and said, you know, not exactly, I don't align with either party, really. They're not the PCs of the past or even the NDP of the past. Uh, does this election speak to, or do you think there's an appetite for another party in the province of alberta more choices for albertans
2: yeah you know it's it's an interesting question i i think there are lots of structural factors that make it difficult for a new party to emerge and for people to say that they're not happy with either of the choices also sends a signal to those parties they don't need to be what they have been in the past. Um, We saw both of them move toward the center because that's where the bulk of Alberta voters were. Now, the question becomes, do they stay in the center or do they move back to the left and the right um, now that the election is over? And, you know, I think the rational thing for them, uh, both parties to do is to position themselves closer to the center and, and try to give voters a sense that there's a positive reason to vote for them rather than having to rely on the, the negative uh, claim of, you know, vote for us, we're safer than the other alternative. Mm-hmm. Thank you
1: so much. A really fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Lisa Young is a political
0: scientist at the University of Calgary. A big part of the UCP election campaign revolved around the issue of health care and their public health guarantee. How can we hold the new provincial government to their election promises and take steps towards addressing the problems in Alberta's health care system? Joining us to discuss the topic is Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Now, this is your realm when you talk about, you know, being, uh, you know, the Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. So I'm wondering from your perspective, can we glean anything from the election and, and what that says, the result on the public's perspective on the health care system?
3: Absolutely. We just saw an election where health care was clearly the top issue from day one right to election day. It was a top concern from Albertans that they wanted public health care addressed, and we saw that reflected in both parties' campaigns and platforms and the public health guarantee that you mentioned from Danielle Smith, which is a promise we'll be looking to ensure she keeps. But what we also saw is our health minister was defeated. Our former health minister was defeated and actually any minister who had been involved in health care was defeated on election night, uh, which we think is a bit uh, damning to the record of the UCP government, but also means we'll have a brand new health minister when a new cabinet uh, is announced and we're hopeful that so that's an opportunity for the government to reflect a bit on the decisions they've made and maybe change course or change their approach uh, to be a bit more collaborative in their second term in government.
1: There was a lot of concern about some of the things that were said by Danielle Smith herself, but by the UCP during the mm-hmm. election and prior to it, frankly. And so when you say, Chris, you know, we're going to keep this government accountable, what do you mean? How do you do that? How how does anyone actually, you know, go about making sure that things are are kept on the up and up in, within our health care system?
3: Absolutely. And you're right that we did hear, even during the campaign, some UCP candidates, again, talking about, perhaps people paying to go to emergency rooms or for other healthcare services that are currently covered. So it's still an issue that's out there and has been said from both Danielle Smith and members of her team. So it is concerning. We think we need to be very diligent uh, in watching what they're doing and uh, the public calling that out. But more importantly, we heard during the election things like almost every single emergency room doctor in Calgary saying we are still in a crisis. It's a staffing crisis. You need to address that. And we've been hearing uh, from Danielle Smith and that government that you know it's the crisis is over we fix things things are getting better but that's not what we're hearing from healthcare workers in fact what we're hearing is they're thinking about moving moving to places like bc or other jurisdictions and so we really need whoever that new minister is to act quickly to show they're going to be different they're going to be collaborative and they're going to have a real plan to retain the healthcare workers we have in the system right now if they don't we're going to see more people leave and we'll never recruit and train our way to solving that crisis so that's really what we're watching are they going to have a different approach to how they deal with doctors, nurses, other healthcare professionals, or are we going to see more and more people leaving?
0: Speaking with Chris Galloway, Executive Director of Friends of Medicare. Oh, the P word, privatization, Chris. I, mm-hmm. I want to break this down in, in a couple ways. First of all, I want to get your definition of privatization because it's been explained to me that you're not going to be paying out of pocket, but these are contractors that would be covered under the umbrella, for example, of Alberta Healthcare for Albertans. Is that an incorrect definition? And do we have more than that uh, being operated right now in our province?
3: Yeah, you're correct. Mostly what's happening uh, that the UCP government was doing is they're putting for-profit contracts within the publicly delivered health care system. So we're seeing private for-profit delivery that we're paying for with public health care dollars, which to us doesn't make sense to use public health care dollars for profit for corporations when we could actually offer care. But what we've been seeing with a lot of those contracts is Albertans are watching those uh, privatization schemes fail in real time. We saw a report during the election that showed the surgical initiatives actually making things worse. It's costing us more while we're getting fewer surgeries done, and it's hurting our public hospitals. We're watching DynaLife in Calgary in the South still unable to deliver the lab services they're contracted to deliver in the public systems having to step in to try to help. And we're seeing that with the food services and Foothills Hospital, University Hospital, elsewhere where the food is crap, but there's not a availability when it's needed. The staff are very upset. So we're seeing this over and over with these schemes where for-profit corporations are brought into the system uh, that it's making things worse and it's costing us more. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And we're hopeful uh, that whoever the new ministry is will actually review those contracts to see what services are supposed to be delivered. First of all, if they're even needing the contract, but also look at other options such as providing those publicly, rather than us funding profits for corporations.
1: Chris, you touched on it, but in your opinion, how does the government address the healthcare short-staffing crisis and and make sure that we keep doctors and nurses and any kind of healthcare Mm -hmm. professional right here in Alberta?
3: Absolutely. I think retention is the top issue. We need to retain, and then of course we need to recruit and train folks we need to fill the, the vacancies going forward. But if we don't retain who's already working and living here, we'll never get ahead of this crisis. Uh, And part of that's a change in tone, a change towards respect rather than attacks at the bargaining tables and the media, um, but also a collaborative approach. We've been calling for over two years for the government to create a comprehensive workforce plan for healthcare where they actually bring everyone together, bring together AHS, employers, the unions, the associations, the doctors, the post-secondary institutions, and actually map out what do we need to staff this system and how can we get there and work together to get that. Solution, Because we are in a crisis, people are moving, they are leaving, and we're falling behind. So we really need to see leadership uh, and an approach that brings people together rather than pits people against each other.
0: Chris, this has been a topic for as long as I can remember, probably at least the past couple mm-hmm. of decades when it comes to health care and focus in the province. But we also are well aware that healthcare issues and addressing them uh, province by province basis is an issue to a certain extent all provinces and territories. But Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, does one province or territory have it right? Could we be looking at one of their models to try to adapt and adopt what they do to bring it here to Alberta?
3: Absolutely. And you're right. We have also been calling that there needs to be a national approach to looking at this. Because we are seeing a situation where provinces are competing against each other for workers, you've probably seen ads: "Are you a nurse? Do you want to move to Nova Scotia? Here's a, an incentive to do that." Right, and that, that's not going to help any of us if we're just fighting for a small pool of people between each other. But if we look to BC, they've made some substantial changes to how they're going to compensate doctors and move away from a fee-for-service model. They've also made substantive changes for nurses and other healthcare professionals that are very appealing to folks in Alberta it's just one province over and they can really look at jobs there and maybe not even have to live through winter right Uh, so we should be looking at what other provinces are doing to retain and recruit staff and we should be having this national conversation uh, with all provinces and the federal government at the table to really you know stop the race to the bottom in terms of fighting for healthcare workers and really figure out how we're going to staff this system
1: potentially a reset we'll see how it goes and uh, i know you'll be keeping uh, track of things we'll, we'll be in touch again to make sure that this ucp government is is keeping health care on track in the province of alberta thanks for your time chris appreciate it
3: absolutely thanks for having me on
1: thank you chris galloway executive director of friends of medicare it is our bi segment aimed at making your mental health a priority kind of trying to reset us all and keep us On the straight and narrow perhaps so we are checking in with our friend karen gallagher burt mental health advocate and social worker to talk a little bit this time about about social media and we know being on social media too much can be very very detrimental to your mental health on the whole but really after this election campaign karen i would suspect people are are suffering a little bit because of all that was online during this uh, election campaign how are you this morning first off
4: Awesome. I'm great. Hope both of you are well. Um, And it's interesting when you say this, and I brought up this topic today because of my own experiences just recently and the anxiety I had probably the month prior to the election um, and where those sources were coming from for me and what I had to limit. So I could listen to radio like yourselves. I could watch some of the news with fast-forward segments. But I found on the social media I was being triggered to go down a bit more of an anxiety hole than I would be with any other form of media I was consuming. And we're finding that with folks that we talk to who are already a bit more susceptible to kind of having information come in and take it a bit more internally. Those folks, particularly during this election time, had a really hard time.
0: But you, you touched on something, Karen, that really struck me. It was if the information is coming at you like out of a fire hose nonstop, mm. the saying I've always heard is not what happens to us, but how we react to those things that happen to us. Easier said than done. And if you can't completely shut down this information, how do we kind of process it?
4: So so what, one of the things we've heard, and I would say that when people call the distress center, we actually learn some really neat coping mechanisms from them. They have a lot of great strengths. And a lot of folks talk about limiting social media. When you think about your sleep hygiene, for example, you'll often be told, well, shut off your computer an hour before bed. Um, Make sure you're not eating anything too heavy. Maybe do the hot milk. There'll be ritual and routine. And I think with social media, because it does have some good sides to it, it's managing it as if you were managing a substance or um, your eating habits, and sort of saying, I can only use it for certain periods of time, and I have to give my brain, let's go with the album analogy, I have to be unplugged for a a period of time, uh, just to reset your brain and to reset that chemicals that are surging every time you get that dopamine hit by something that causes you a bit of either anxiety or positive, you get that surge of dopamine in your brain, and your brain at some point doesn't know the difference. So it's got just being cautious about it, and I think integrating some habits or hygiene around how you use it, particularly for our young
1: folks. That's what I was going to say. Easy for us as adults to say, "Oh, okay, we can, we'll turn it off for a little bit." But that's their world, and I think you know, in a way, we don't even understand how intense and important it is to them and, and everything they do in their everyday life. So, how do you get your kid, your teenager? to just shut it off for a while? Because that's, that's going to be a, a real challenge. You know, I,
4: I, I don't think it's about telling them to shut it off. I think it's about practicing the habits yourself and showing them, but also offering other options. If it's, you know, maybe it's 9 o'clock at night, you've got a, a 12-year-old, and by 9 o'clock at night, you're like, okay, I want to shut it down. Then what can you institute as a routine in a family that might be better? Maybe 9 to 10 is that time when together... You make lunches or you, you know, get out the clothes for tomorrow or talk about whatever that is but finding those times my other big one and it's for myself as well is no phones in the bedroom we we've made a choice in our family just like we don't eat in bed especially not crackers <laughs> we don't do those things we we don't take our phones into the bedroom we've made a decision as a family that's not healthy
0: Let's let's talk about that communication piece. Like you say, doing something with your child. But beyond that, as an adult, as you know, a person with responsibilities on our shoulders, the importance of talking over these issues with friends who might be going through the same thing, how important is that?
4: Oh, my goodness. Well, that's peer support, right? And often we're dealing with something either with one of our youth or even a partner where we have no clue that everybody else is going through the same thing. And and think about it when you were young, how many times in your head you went to school with that one tiny zit on your face, and oh my God, it's like the giant eye in the center of your forehead, because you believe that everybody's looking at you, and that's where their heads are. Everybody's observing them, and everything they do is, you know, it's up for scrutiny by their friends. So it really is stepping back and talking about um, boundaries and healthy boundaries, That social media use, not only is it normal, it is part of their life. Embrace it. But, you know, boundaries are always a good thing. Just think about putting those extra gutters up when you're teaching a kid how to bowl. Um, We want to teach them what this is the lane I want you to be in. Mm -hmm. And this is why outside of it's a bit more unhealthy without diminishing them or their friends.
1: tough, but we have to be on it. We just have to be on it. Can you talk a little bit, uh, once again, just about the great work that is that you do and is available, the help that's available at the Distress Centre?
4: Oh, 100%. So I I would say that there's four areas that we specialize in, but always the umbrella is emergency kind of support for folks um, on their mental health side. So crisis lines, number one, and you can phone us, uh, 266 HELP at 24-7. And on that, you can have up to 200 languages. Then we also offer the same service by text and chat. So both of those, no language there. Unfortunately, I haven't got software for that yet, but we are available for that. Also have counseling, crisis counseling. If you need short-term counseling, give us a call. Ask about doing an intake. You can come in and see our counselors and they're brilliant for free, up to six sessions for free. Uh, and then the third one I think is always important to talk about is 2 one um, It's interesting because so many people still don't know about that number. And it is your place to go when you don't know what service, you know the service you want, but you don't know the name, you don't know if it exists. Again, 2 one phone, chat, text. You'll have an expert there helping you navigate what's out there and what you can find, but also offering that follow-up. And that's a... The difference when you get a human, a person versus AI, and I love AI, but not for this. Yeah. When you get a human, then they can offer a follow up and a callback in a, in few days. Did those resources work? If they didn't, they can advocate and support you, and that's that. I think the extra, um, the extra part of it, and and even in the languages, our number one language we're asked to translate translate into is Punjabi. Wow. Um, And so we also know that, you know, certain languages, we're going to get more people who are interested in checking in, but they may not know they can ask for that. So I think that's critical.
0: The resources are there. The support is there. You just have to make that first step and reach out. Thank you so much for your time, Karen. We look forward to our next chat.
4: Awesome. I hope I can get there in person. Maybe my time manage will be better. (laughs) Sue's (laughs) going to bring
0: donuts if she knows you're coming. Okay, you got to bake me.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, sounds good. Thank Have a you. wonderful day.
0: You too. It's Karen Gallagher Bird, mental health advocate and social worker working from the Distress Centre.